Hi. Welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Fridays podcast. I'm Hari Arakli, tech editor at Forbes India. In these podcasts, we'll bring you conversations with entrepreneurs who are finding opportunities in solving a variety of problems in multiple areas. We will also talk to investors from venture capital companies and other folks who are playing a significant role in India's maturing startup scene. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. You can also find us live on Instagram every Friday morning. Stay safe and happy listening. Uh, our guest uh, this week is Suresh V. Shankar, founder and CEO of uh, Crayon Data. It's a nine-year-old big data and AI company out of Singapore and Chennai. Suresh is a second-time entrepreneur and uh, an evangelist of big data analytics and uh, digital personalization. His first venture, Red Pill Analytics, was acquired by IBM. With uh, more than 35 years in the industry, he likes to say he's been around long enough to see the transformation of marketing from right brain to left brain pursuit. Suresh has an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta. He was a member of the board of directors of the Indus Entrepreneurs in Singapore, which is where he is joining us from today. And he also hosts a podcast called Slaves to the Algo, which he says is his attempt to demystify the age of the algorithm. So Suresh, fantastic that you were able to make time for this conversation. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much, Hari, and to Forbes India for having me here. Really looking forward to the conversation. Okay, brilliant. So for people who are not very familiar with uh, your work, uh, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about uh, how you started the company. What was the problem that attracted you? Why did you find it interesting? And we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Hari. Um, as always, I think, uh, you know, I have been on search for the holy grail of what marketers want to do worldwide for many decades now, which is, you know, can I understand an individual consumer as a person, understand exactly what they need and try and serve them that, that particular solution. And so if you look at it today, you know, as consumers, we're all inundated with choice, right? And whether it's a place to eat, whether it's something to travel to, a hotel to choose from, a shirt to buy, there's just so much, too much choice. And there's a lot of theory that basically says that when you have too much choice, you get confused. It's a paradox of choice, right? And you're not able to make a decision. And you know, we've all seen this, right? We talk about it, we look at the reviews, the reviews say it's good, some other review says it's bad. 45 minutes later, what do we end up doing when you're looking for a place to eat? We go to the same place that we went to always, or the default choice. So I basically, the idea of Crayon was set up to what we call said, simplify the world's choices. Because there is evidence that shows that if you show people four to six choices, that's what the human brain can handle, that are highly relevant to them, then they actually make more choices. They are happier, they're more satisfied with the choices that they make. And so we said, can we actually create a piece of AI that can seek to understand consumers so well as individuals that we can personalize and bring it down or simplify choices into four or five really relevant ones at any given point of time. It's a bit like what Spotify does in music, right? I mean, there's 200 million customers, you know, 150 million songs. That's 30 quadrillion possible choices. But they're somehow able to find the right playlist. It's very different based on your taste in music, whether it's a Monday or a Friday, whatever you're coming from. And that's very different from mine. So that's what we're trying to do at Crayon. Hmm. When you uh, started your company, uh, when you started Crayon, uh, what was, uh, if I can put it this way, what was the sort of minimum viable product that you came up with? And then we can go into how it has evolved today. Great. Um, so if you really look at it, you know, we chose to go, unlike a lot of companies that are trying to create all these B2C companies that are saying, hey, we will go out there and do that. We realize that that's a hard model uh, to build out. So we chose to go to the B2B2C model. And that, what that meant is we said we want to allow large enterprises to 
actually personalize stuff for their consumers rather than trying to launch a consumer business of our own. So what that really meant, um, Hari, is that we said, look, you know, if you're a large bank, you're a large airline, you're a large travel, anybody in travel or in um, you know any lifestyle business, you have millions of customers and you want to do the personalization. This is what we want to help you do because you struggle with it, right? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's not the tech alone. It's getting the data, getting the people, changing process and mindset. And we said, can we build a platform that can do that? As it happened, our first client happened very, very early in the startup. It is a hotel chain that was based in London. Uh, and I think we did work with them for three years nearly to help them really as they were getting there about 30, 40 properties in London and as there were people coming in. He said, how do we actually help you understand as the person comes in, what are all that person's choices and how can you completely create a, a totally personalized experience out of London? I mean, your hotel is a gateway to the city, right? And you go in there, you may like sports, you may like Arsenal, somebody may like Chelsea, somebody may like the theater. How do we actually create that whole experience? That's the kind of use case that we worked on with them. And from there, it's uh, it's expanded, right? I mean, you know, we work with consumer banks. We tried a lot of different industries, consumer banks, airlines. You know, uh, we were tried to do stuff in advertising. Uh, but today, Hari, if you look at it, we are largely focused on what we call the consumer banking space. We work with large credit card, debit card, wallet companies, and we work in the travel business. Unfortunately, after COVID, travel is now a dead industry, but we've done some really interesting work um, for people like Emirates Airlines. Uh, we work with large banks like HDFC Bank, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank. Um, uh, we've kind of been doing this whole minimal vibe, this product for one of the biggest fintechs in the world that's coming out of the Middle East. Uh, and we work for companies that straddle travel and banking like American Express. Uh, today, uh, give us a sense of uh, what your flagship product is. I believe you call it Maya.ai. Uh, what is it all about? And uh, what are some of the interesting ways in which your customers are using it? Um, so yeah, the product is called Maya.ai and Maya, while you know it's all, all about illusion and magic and all that, right? We said, can we transform the misery of choosing into the magic of choice? Meaning choice should be magical and that's why we called it Maya, right? And said, can you actually do something that creates this Maya for you? Uh, what we actually solve is very simple, right? We tell any enterprise, if you have, let's say, 10 million customers, we will create deep personalized taste prints or profiles of these customers looking at a lot of data. So, for example, for a credit card company, they might see a lot of transactions on my on my credit card statement, but they don't know anything about Suresh. What Maya.ai does is it allows them to uncover preferences, for example, by looking at it and says Suresh is dog friendly and he loves outdoor seating. By looking at the transactions, looking at thousands of attributes about each of the merchants that we have that I have visited, the products I have bought, it kind of creates this kind of a deep profile of me. What it then does is the second thing it does is it uses that deep profile to make recommendations or engage the customer with choices that are very, very relevant to me. And the third part of what we do is that we say, okay, now that Suresh has found out, let's say a restaurant that's dog friendly and has great vegetarian food that he wants to go to, can we actually allow him to make the booking and actually make the transaction? So those are the three things that we actually do in the product, profile, engage and transact. And we, like I said, we do it behind a bank and behind a travel uh, company like an airline or a hotel. Um, the kind of ways in which they use it is very simple. One is they want to personalize engagement. Uh, look at it this way, Hari. I mean, I don't want to name any bank, many of the banks that are customers, but do you open anything that your bank sends you today, either in the form of an email or an SMS or an app? Probably not. If an Amazon recommends something to you, if Spotify or Netflix recommends something to you, do you look at it? Probably yes. 
what we are trying to do is to bring that world of netflix and spotify and amazon into the traditional industry that don't have that capability and they then try to say i will do that personalization that recommendation i will engage my customer i will get them to spend more time and i will get them to spend more money and this happens in a variety of different places right i mean we work with wallet companies that are trying to hyper localize how do you find something on your very close to you on your street but that is relevant to you not just nearby we work with a very with the american express for example they can call you know when you are a, when you are trying to do a big trip and you call the call center the agent is able to give you a completely personalized itinerary covering millions of flights and hotel combinations in 2 minutes so imagine you're going to get that not all that searching that you're doing and the concierge has got that engine behind them to tell you hurry we know you love beach holidays we know you love the maldives we know that you like to fly this airline we know you like to stay in these kind of hotels we know you and it gives you a full itinerary so those are the kind of use cases that we work with hmm. uh can you dive down into this a little bit more in the sense that give us a sense of uh, the technology underlying uh, maya uh explain to us a bit about how maya does what it is able to do um i will try to do that i am not a techie myself neither am i a maths or a stats person and you know i didn't study engineering and if you ask all my classmates they'll say that guy i mean you know he didn't do well in maths and stats god's way of taking revenge of all those classes i didn't attend is to now make me do this for a living but let me try and explain a little bit what we built uh, at the core of it is there are the three patterns that underlie the core of the engine that we built one is what we call the test graph what we've done hari is that we've gone in crayon and we've kind of really mapped you know millions of merchants around the world gathered unstructured data about them so we know thousands of attributes about each merchant and product we've tried to deconstruct that whole thing and that's something that we call the test graph it's got billions of data points on like you no know, lots of products and lots of uh, lots of merchants the second thing we did is something that we call the choice ai which is actually able to take this data and make a connection or or create an affinity between any two particular data points so here is the problem you live in let's say you live in bangalore and let's say you're going to bangkok how do i take the behavior that you have shown in bangalore and tell you what you might like in bangkok now this is very hard to do because there may not be a lot of common data points between them right traditional methods that people have used like you know collaborative filtering don't want to go into the tech uh fail because there are not enough points like that we actually created a patent that literally becomes a global thing across categories where i'm able to look at it and say you know that um i can take what you did in a particular city or in a particular category and i can project that to say what might you be doing it's like they talk about the seven degrees of separation right we are able to calculate those degrees of separation and say hey you know what i think hari likes these things or may like these things and then i find things that you may like in some other unconnected place and when that shown out to you, you know as the engine interacts and as you learn that the machine learns more about okay when i showed hari something uh, i'm going to i don't know your taste hari but i'm just going to make a uh, make a guess right that that you uh, that you like let's say seafood and vegetarian now okay i think he likes this let me show him something about that and as you interact with it it learns a little bit more about you and as it learns it's kind of saying okay you know what he only does seafood on the weekends i'm making it up again so that's the kind of technology that we built under the hood one is this entire map that we built of global taste that we call the taste graph and second is what we call the choice ai which is able to take affinities between two completely unconnected points and say i think there's a good chance that these two are related 
there's a whole lot of tech that goes into it. My engineers are going to hate me for simplifying it like this, but at the core of it, that's what it does. Okay. Uh, give us a sense of uh, the scale of operations uh, of Crayon today. Uh, any which way you want to do that. Okay. Uh, today, you know, Crayon's, uh, I would say in the, uh, I, I don't, you know, comparison is never a good thing, but I think, you know, we have, uh, we have profiled over 125 million customers so far. These are not our users, but we work for enterprises. Um, obviously, the airline business isn't going anywhere, so the number is slightly lower than that today in, in real sense. It's about 30 million customers who are on the platform that we are profiling and engaging. We only work with very, very large clients, right? We have not gone this traditional model of saying we have thousands of clients. Because we believe that the problem and the engine that we built is a very complex one and therefore we are, our model is better suited to working with large clients. So we work with about 10 clients which span about, uh, who have operations in about 20 different countries today. And uh, from a revenue and a, uh, and, a, and, a, and a profitability perspective, we have actually been a slightly different startup. We've said we are, we are growing over 100% every year. We will be probably, uh, you know, well over, uh, last year we were just short of $10 million in terms of uh, ARR, which is a standard metric that's used in startups, and you know this year we'll more than double that. And uh, we have also chosen to focus on trying to be profitable and not kind of um, the model of trying to burn billions to earn millions is not something that we've done. We said we don't mind burning money, but we also want to earn money. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about uh, AI in general. Uh, your company is uh, one of the leaders in building in this in some sectors. Uh, if you step back uh, and look at this and you also interact with a lot of these AI leaders and also through your podcasts, give us a sense of, uh, in your view, what are some of the most uh, important developments in AI in recent time you know, and why these particular developments are noteworthy? Uh, that's a great question because, you know, I think there are multiple types in you know, AI and machine learning and data science are being used in a very general sense to apply to everything and not everything is AI and machine learning and data science, right? Uh, so if you really look at it, there is what you call general AI, which is what everybody is trying to kind of get towards. And that's the thing that people talk about. But there's also point solutions or specific forms of AI that solve specific problems. Now, uh, generally in most tech, Hari, you'll be aware of this, that, you know, the promise tends to head, run ahead of the reality. Many people would have heard about IBM Watson, about DeepMind, uh, and, you know, which got acquired by Google and, Al you know, which plays AlphaGo very well. Uh, Watson played Jeopardy and like you know, did very well in it, right? But what happens is when we make the promise of a general AI, it tends to be like, you know, very far in the future. I don't think it's all out there yet. Uh, the reality is that in the short term, all those things are harder to do. But here's the funny thing that happens in the slightly longer term, the reality tends to outpace the expectation. So if you take, for example, again, I'm going to use an example of Deep Blue, which is a big machine that played Kasparov and struggled within the first time and won. At that time, it was like, you know, the promise of Deep Blue was very big. But 20 years later, that Deep Blue, and there's a better machine like that that's available inside your mobile phone, which millions of chess players are playing. So what tends to happen is that I think people should not expect too much of general AI in the short term. But I think in the longer term, it's going to be fantastic and it's going to be like, um, it's going to really change a lot of things. That said, I think where we are really doing very well is in point solutions. The ability of Spotify to recommend the right song to you or for Amazon to say there's a product that it'll recommend, right? The ability of, let's say, an Apple phone to know that when you are kind of going to get up and if I have to go to my next meeting, it says it's going to take you 27 minutes to get there. Or, you know, linking your calendar and saying, you know, you're going to be late for your next meeting if you don't start now. 
find solutions like that that are very specific forms of AI are the ones I think where a lot of, um, I would say, uh, progress is being made in the short term. Uh, on my podcast, you mentioned it, Ari. We've had some really interesting conversations about how uh, AI and machine learning is kind of used to figure out, you know, the bottle shape and tint and how it, in whiskey, in Scotch whiskey, is being used to kind of predict how much people will actually like that, right? So there's all kinds of different uh, point solutions where I think AI and machine learning is doing well today. But I think the promise of general AI is a little bit, at least a decade or so away. Mm. Uh, I listened to one recent uh, uh, episode. In fact, I think uh, the second part of the second season's finale where uh, he spoke to a medical doctor who also was an expert in AI and he talked about uh, how there is some consternation, uh, which is one of the things that you highlighted in terms of uh, looking at AI as uh, AI uh, and he preferred uh, augmented intelligence. Uh, What is the concern here? So, I think there are two things, right? I mean, I, I really love that thing with Sandeep Reddy of Media AI where he talked about AI should be augmented intelligence and not artificial intelligence, right? And I think the best thing that people in the profession can do and that and that I think even business users and, and general consumers can do is talk about how AI augments or enhances the human being. I still think where we need the human, we are in a stage where we need the human being and the machine because people don't, one, fear, I don't want to give control to the machine whether I'm a business person or a consumer. But more importantly, I don't think the AI is that or the capability is that evolved that it can start to do the things that we that we want it to do, right? It doesn't solve those problems. So I believe that the step change that will happen will be in this whole human plus machine or augmented intelligence models where I go to a doctor, I don't want the doctor to say the machine told me this. I want the doctor to say, but the doctor also can't read thousands of articles and come up with it. Say, I have looked at it. The machine tells him that the doctor works with the machine to then say, you know what, having looked at all that evidence and all that, this is what I think I would do if I were you. So that's the, I think the immediate next step. The challenge in a lot of the open models that are happening is that AI obviously has bias, right? And there's people talking about bias. Why does bias happen, right? Bias happens because all AI machines need data. Data, the training data set that you build on is typically a reflection of what is already available in the world. So for example, take lending decisions, right? If you have a lending decision where all the people who have been lent to are, and let me take America as an example, are people who are slightly upper middle class, whatever it is, who have a certain income. And most of those people tend to be of a certain racial profile, a certain gender profile. Now, whatever recommendation that machine comes out is just going to reflect the bias that's inherent in the data. And therefore, it will tend to say, if you're not from that particular racial group, if you're not from that gender, if you're not from that age group, you are not likely to be a good repayer, let's say, of a loan. Unfortunately, what's happening is that the machine is reflecting the bias of the existing data, even though it doesn't intend to, because that's all it has to work with. So there's a need to kind of program these things in ways. And and this has been done before, right? You know, you take out two CVs and you kind of strip out the names and all of that stuff and you give it. And it's proven that um, in an American context, in an African-American or a lady will get hired far more less than when they can actually see the name of the person and say that I know this is a lady or I know the age or I know the racial profile. And that's, I think, one of the things that we really need to guard against because data has bias. And you also have to remember that the people who are coding it also have inherent bias they don't know. I mean, I tend to think of things in a certain way because I'm a certain kind of person. So I, I, I think this is one of the big issues that's happening. 
And Harik has a very interesting concept called explainable AI. And this is, I think, a fundamental thing that I think all AI practitioners should aspire to, which is, I need to be able to say why the machine reached the decision that it did. Explain it to me. Now, put it in very simple consumer terms, if you remember in the 1970s, nothing, no food packet and any labeling. Today, you would not buy something if the, if the label on the food packet didn't list the ingredients and the calories and everything else. That's explainable ingredients, right? They, AI should have the same level of explainability and I think it will happen over the next three, four years because that's going to be the demand on all AI practitioners. Okay, I'm going to shift gears again and uh, we definitely want to know more about your own entrepreneurial journey. Uh, we'll start with a very simple question. Uh, is there a story behind uh, the name Crayon? Uh, what's the significance? Oh, it's a, it's a very simple story. I mean, the name Crayon is about simplicity, right? I felt when I started Crayon that the entire tech world is vested in complexity, right? People like to make things more complex so they can sell more complex solutions and do more money. And we said, you know, we really want to make this very simple. Come in here, buy the platform, use it, it should do this. And when we're looking for a name that conveys simplicity, we went through lots of things. And then we said, listen, this is the simplest thing in the world is a crayon, right? A child can use it. No instruction manual. It tells a colorful story. That's what we, I don't think we're there, but I think that was our aspiration that our product and platform should be like that, that the service should be as simple to use as a crayon. Hmm. Uh, I, I definitely said that we want to ask you about your entrepreneurial journey, but this point about the child being able to use uh, crayon, I can't resist asking this question. And it's also because it's now it's uh, a lot of people are excited about the whole idea of no code and low code. So is uh, Maya also getting there or is it already kind of very low code for people to use drag and drop editors and things like that? So we work with large enterprises, right? And I think large enterprises have typically two kinds of people. They are people who are, you know, business users who want that low code. I just want the answer coming to me. I want to be able to use a simple workflow. But on the other hand, to make it really powerful, you need to work with what you call developers who say, I want to go in and use the API and play with the code because I need to make this work in a more powerful way. So in that sense, Crayon works with both sets of business users, but our job should be for both of them to make it easy. Even the developer says, give me the API in such a way that I can manipulate it. The business user says, give me the insight, give me the, give me that entire, that final set of stories in a way that I can actually act on it. So we are trying our best to simplify life for both sets of users. Are we completely in the low code, no code? I mean, fashions come and many of them don't go. I think this one is there to stay, but I don't think, uh, I mean, I think it's the early stages of the low code, no code movement overall in the sense of the world. And even in Crayon, I think, you know, it's a journey that we've just started to undertake. Okay, let's get, get back to you. Uh, you started your first startup at a time when most young folks probably wouldn't even have heard of the word startup uh, in India. Uh, other careers would have been much more attractive and certainly uh, to parents of young people. Uh, so what, what prompted you to start your own venture? So, Hari, uh, I'm what I call an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I spent 15 years in corporate life. I was living in Singapore. I actually quit my corporate high paying job to join another startup as a CEO in the web services this is in 2000. And this is the height of the dot com boom. And then I went home for 15 days to take a break before coming back. And in those 15 days, the startup did not even start. I mean, so when the guy said, we're not starting because, you know, the dot-com bust happened in those 15 days. So I'm like thinking, what have I done? And I said, this thing happens for a reason, right? And I would not have taken the plunge. But I said, let me spend 
some time thinking about it and when i thought about it i came around and said my entire 15 years of experience tells me that the future of marketing is going to be led by data and technology whereas i came from advertising i came from media i came from using my right brain and uh, when I, in 2000 i rather stupidly went ahead and did this thing i say stupidly but um, uh, I, i'll come to that in a moment and what i said basically is that analytics wasn't even a thing but i said i think this is the future and i want to create it uh, i think all entrepreneurs have to have that moment of stupidity where you make a we all talk about make, taking a leap of faith everybody has to make that leap of faith right and you well, we shouldn't do it because it's glamorous we should say because i really believe in it if you do it because everybody else is doing it well I mean, yes you can make some money but that's like saying i got into banking or consulting or some job because everybody's in that job right but you must have that conviction and i had that conviction that the future was going to be about data and tech and that's why I, i kind of said let me may take the plunge um as always hurry in these things it's a it's a hard thing right i mean you know it's not that easy everyone now today thinks i mean today startup and this is 2000 there wasn't funding available there wasn't a lot of support everyone was like what are you doing Luckily, that story ended well. The biggest tech firm in the world at that time, which is IBM, nine years later acquired us. Uh, but not all stories are like you know there are heartbreak stories. So I think there's a uh, today. I think it's a lot easier if you're an entrepreneur. But one word of caution I'd give to all the entrepreneurs is that don't do it because it's glamorous. Don't do it because you'll make money. Do it because you have deep conviction that you want to change some state of the world that you believe really needs changing. because it is that conviction that will stay with you when you hit your low and every entrepreneur will hit a low moment in the journey and at that point of time your only friend is yourself mm. yeah i want to ask about that as well uh, just down the line but uh, on this point this advice of uh, you know uh, looking for your conviction uh, what were some of your biggest uh, takeaways from uh, red pill which you sold to ibm uh, from building that company and overall when you look back Uh, at your three decades plus of entrepreneurial journey, uh, what what are some of the biggest lessons that you know you would like to talk about for other young entrepreneurs today? I think um, I would say there are three big lessons, sorry, that I have learned in my life. One is that you should not follow the trend; you should be a little bit ahead of time. Meaning, if you are trying to get behind the thing and saying hey, there's a trend and I'm trying to follow it, you're never going to make that big an impact on something else, right? You have to be a little bit ahead of time. you have to kind of say i want to try and create something out there i mean it may not be the biggest thing in the world not all of us are going to be like steve jobs in reinventing six industries but many of us can reinvent many things right you can even reinvent some small thing like you know k12 education or something in your neighborhood or whatever so being ahead of time a little bit not following the trend is my first um, take away from that right if you follow the trend it's going to be harder the second piece of advice i would say is walk your own path and this is kind of this thing right you're going to get a lot of advice your vcs are going to come and your investors are going to come and your friends are going to come everyone everyone's going to say there's a playbook just follow this playbook and yes playbooks exist for a reason right they help you understand the issues they help you kind of get ahead faster but the biggest stories the best stories the biggest entrepreneurs didn't follow a playbook they went out there and they created something because they had the conviction to do it right and so for me the playbooks are meant to help you your vc is meant to help you your investor your friends your other advisors and mentors are meant to help you but you need to be able to know that you have to forge your own path but the third and the biggest story for me really on this one is about persistence and resilience right 
if you must have what I call the persistence gene or the stupidity gene, whichever one you call it, to be able to go because you will go through highs and lows. And at that point of time, what will keep you going, Hari, is persistence. Sometimes you have to just keep going at that problem. And if you have the conviction and if you have the knowledge, you know that eventually water will always win over rock, right? So you need to have that persistence of water saying, I'm going to keep banging away at this till I break down that rock. Mm. Uh, you you did say that, you know, you referred to one of the things about startups today. I mean, it certainly seemed to be very glamorous uh, as an industry. Uh, but people also often say that being a founder of a startup is a very lonely journey. Uh, what's been your experience? Uh, give us a sense of uh, the toll it takes on you and family and friends and so on, uh, starting and operating a startup. So I've been at this for about 21 years now, nine years, my first startup. Okay, I had two years in a corporate in between and nine years in this one. So the first thing is that no overnight success that people talk about in a startup happened overnight. It takes eight to 10 years. So all this, I'll do something in one or two years, forget it. No big, great company got created in less than eight to 10 years. We don't see the toil that goes in, you know, into those six, eight years till you build up that business. And, you know, you only see the headline, somebody raised money, somebody sold, somebody exited. So what, what I think happens is that in those years that you're building it up, there's a lot of pressure on you. Every day is a cooker, pressure cooker. You have talent problems because everybody is leaving. Someone's offering them a better job, more money, more stock, whatever. Everyone's like, oh, I can do something more. You have revenue problems. Your clients won't give you money. Or if you have a consumer business, it's like, you know, attrition rates are high. People are using your product, not paying for it. Your investors will demand growth. Every day is beset with all of these people, talent, client, investors, putting pressure on you saying, I need what I want out of this, right? Uh, what happens is that you need to be able to keep some bit of a calm mind as you go through it. It's not possible, but like, you know, it's not always possible, but as you go through the pressure, you've got to have some kind of calmness about how you handle it. The worst thing that happens to an entrepreneur is what happens in the evening. When you go to sleep, you go to sleep with your doubts and your insecurities and your fears and your worries. No entrepreneur who comes out there and says, I am the king of the world. If you actually ask them, they'll always say they go to sleep with their own doubt because they are the owner of that doubt, that insecurity, that fear, that worry, right? And that takes a toll on your mental health. It takes a toll on your physical health. Uh, but one of the things that helps you in this whole journey is a few things that I, or a few things that help you. One, having a co-founder, having somebody who's on the same wavelength, having a set of a good mentors and counselors, because you need people to go and share this burden with. They may not actually act. I mean, your co-founder will help you actively, but a mentor or a counselor may not help you actively, but there will be people who will listen to you, right? It's like they're there to share the burden of this thing. Uh, you must have friends who are not connected with your business because your friends will be your friends no matter whether you're successful or not. And for me, that's a very important source of stress relief. I need to call a friend and I need to say, I talk to you and maybe they'll listen to my story, maybe they won't, but I have to know that my friend will still be my friend. And my favorite stress buster for this thing is to haunt entrepreneurs, get a dog. Your dog is the only person, only human being in life who will be happy to see you no matter whether you had a bad day, a good day, whether your talent has left, whether you've got great talent, your client has left, your investor has yet, you go back home, your dog is happy to see you. 
your dog will be that biggest stress buster that you can have in your life and uh, i would encourage all entrepreneurs to get a dog hmm. on advice uh, and i'm sure you're not joking um, you mentioned uh, the high point low point earlier uh, i wanted to ask you about that in your own uh, entrepreneurial career uh, what was the low point how did you deal with it and what was uh, the high point um i did a talk on you know being driven under pressure for um Huawei you know it was a TED, TEDx talk that i did and i talked about for the story of four phone calls right i told you about the first phone call where this guy i'm supposed to join a startup he called and said you're not even joining and i don't have a job i don't have anything the second phone call which is the high point was when we got a call from IBM saying we're going to go ahead with this deal biggest tech company right in between this low point and high point is where all the other low points and high points happen right it's like a waveform uh, a, a big low point that's happened in crayon is the we were on the verge of signing a massive enterprise contract over 7 years with the biggest airline in the world we had actually built out an entire AI platform we done all of this stuff and one day they called us and told us um, we're not even going ahead with the project and your entire thing that you had built out is like come crashing down and uh, frankly hari to me the way you handle those moments is what makes success was his failure right within one hour we had called up people we had told them this stuff we told that this is a thing uh, and i must tell you the reactions of some of the people in my firm in that low point were was some of the highest point the low point became the highest point because some people said we've seen this kind of problem before we'll get over it and that's what i mean by building resilience not just for yourself but in your company so what was the lowest point where we said we don't know whether the company will survive became a high point because everyone said hey we've seen this stuff we're going to get over this and here's the funny thing that's happened after that covid happened we didn't know what will happen we doubled and we had our best one of our best years last year we're doubling this year so in a way i think uh, these low points are for me the springboard to actually going even higher it's like you look at that springboard right until you go that springboard bends and if you're a diver on that platform you got to go really low for you to go really high when you're jumping mm-hmm. one or two questions uh, again from the point of view of uh, founders and people working in startups learning from your experience and you mentioned uh, earlier on i think uh, uh, funding today uh, hundreds of millions of dollars now being poured into relatively young companies in indian startups uh which kind of uh, you know if you look at talent being the underpinning of uh, a lot of things that happen in startups clearly there's a talent war coming in the in the indian tech scene uh, in your own uh, case uh, you know you've followed the path of uh, modest levels of funding how do you deal with uh, uh, you know competitors with a lot more money Uh, throwing money at uh, talent how do you retain the best people uh, how you know to kind of sustain the work that you're doing um there is no doubt that it's very hard right and we lose talent you know we known as one of the better startups in terms of an ai data systems for example in chennai where we have a one of our big development center we get these people get calls many people get th- i'm not joking three or four times the level of salary and all of that stuff right so you can't even tell those people stay right it's not fair in some way if you're a young guy and and you're doing this we spend a lot of time actually recruiting people from college and training them up and you know then they go away so it is a big problem uh, and we are going to get i mean it's not that we have been so modest that we are not kind of either paying not paying well or not like you know not trying to go and raise the funding 
but I would I would basically say that if um, uh, well, there always be people who leave for the money and so on. There are people who come for the challenge. And luckily, we are not building a business because we're building a platform-based play where we need thousands and thousands of people, right? We want people who come for the challenge and stay for the challenge and say, I will do it. Um, and uh, I, I would also kind of say that, you know, this whole war of saying, I will raise money and then I will go and give more money to the next guy and I'll give people a BMW to join. Uh, you know, even if you to founders, I would say, you know, what is this? We are getting ourselves into a war which makes no sense and the only people who are benefiting are like, you know, people are throwing capital at the problem. It's not as if the founders are benefiting. It's not as if the entrepreneurs are benefiting from it, right? So I would urge that everybody just be a little bit, um, you know, this is probably a voice in the wilderness. Just be a little bit more uh, careful about just going and saying, you know, I'll give you, you know, 10 times the amount of money that somebody else is making simply because you need to give, raise the money and to do it. Uh, I feel that um, it's not necessarily the best way to build enduring startups. Because the same guy who comes there is going to be the guy who leaves for the next one who comes out and says, I'll give you a better deal. Yeah. So talk about challenges. Uh, and to, as we start to wrap this up, uh, it's a kind of a standard question. Uh, what is What are the next big uh, steps and plans for you at Crayon? So uh, one of the things is that, you know, I think we've been good. When I mean, you talked about talent and you talked about raising money, we have been growing the firm very, very solidly, right? And... You know, I think many people in your thing are Indian, so they'll understand cricket. When I was a young man playing cricket in India, my coach would say, you know, bat with your eye on the ball, not the scoreboard. The valuation is the scoreboard. Or somebody said this to me in another thing, right? You know, saying, if you focus on creating value, the valuation will come. I think in our company, we have chosen to bat with the eyes on the ball. We've chosen to focus on value. And we know that all that stuff will come, right? And, uh, but it's not that we are growing modestly or something, you know, this year, like I said, we'll more than double. We think we'll grow 8x in the next three years. Uh, we want to make a big impact in three areas that we think we are at the center of. One is AI, which is our core expertise. The second is marketplaces. And the third is, you know, fintech. And we are working with a lot of exciting fintechs around the world to help them build these personalized marketplaces. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we hope to be uh, have about a quarter billion customers on the platform over the next two, three years. These are not our customers. These are customers, the clients that we have. So it's, for us, it's a really big set of plans. We plan to be in more and more markets. Uh, and what I hope is that uh, we will create as compelling a story as I did in my last startup. And you know, that whether it's an exit, an IPO, we'll, like I said, that's the, that's the scoreboard. If we create enough value, I'm sure the scoreboard will come. I've never been more excited to be at Crayon than I am now, Hari, if I were to put it differently. Fair enough. That sums it up nicely. Uh, a few uh, rapid-fire questions, if you will. Um, rapid-fire in the sense, just answer them quickly without thinking too much about them. Uh, tell us about one thing in your career that is not there on your official resume. I have made a 50 not out on the Melbourne cricket ground and had my name up in lights in the biggest stadium in the world. Awesome. Uh, professionally, name one person who's left a deep impression on you and why. I'm going to name two, Indra Nui. I grew up with a younger brother. She's like an elder sister to me. I only did went to do my MBA because the age of 12 and she was much older. She did her MBA and she went to IIM Calcutta. I wanted to go to IIM Calcutta. So she obviously left a very profound impression on me. Uh, but, but, but I'm going to pick a sports person as my best professional inspiration, Muhammad Ali. When he was world champion, for a principle, he gave up his world championship. And there is a lesson in that. 
that has never that I've never forgotten that principles matter when you're building a business. Hmm. Okay, a book that you keep returning to. Oh, I read hundreds of them. I'm again going to pick two, Ari. For entrepreneurs, the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. The struggle of being an entrepreneur, and he talks about the struggle. Best book that I have read on that. At a personal level, the single wisest book I have read on read on life is a book called Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. It's a very whimsical book. It's not one of his big books, but it's a fantastic book about life. Yeah, some interesting things came out as well about it, and that scene about uh, putting clothes in a bucket while it's there in the van or something. I think, yeah, yeah, so. bit of a controversy over there anyway but uh, like you said awesome book on the whole uh, moving on what does money mean to you in one or two sentences so for me money is not material it's not about the lifestyle that you can buy i mean yes you can go and travel on a flight and do whatever you want to but it's a means to an end it's the ability to create an impact is the ability to say hey listen can i go and help the next 10 entrepreneurs can i do something else that i want to and that's really what i'm thinking about right Okay, you make the money. What do you do with that money? And I think uh, whether you give it away or whether you do something, it's that impact that I think it that that that's all it means to me actually. Okay, one important thing you never start your day without it could be an activity, a habit, a beverage, anything. Coffee, a uh, good good Madras boy. I don't get filter coffee here, but I have to start with my deeply. You know, it's a Colombian coffee. It's some kind of. uh you know single drink coffee whatever it is that i can do so coffee is my start to the day the second thing is i spend 2 minutes thinking about one thing which i learned from the gita which is you can only focus on your actions you got to be detached from the outcomes and i remind myself of that every single day before i start okay last uh, question oh, sorry last two questions your favorite hack to get yourself out of a funk music i have 50 playlists if i am if i almost have playlists for the meetings that i want to go to the things i want to do but if i am in a funk i put music any music and i'm a happy man and lots of people know that that if they come into a meeting and i'm they're playing music i know that i already will be happy and i'm approaching the meeting excellent final question uh, a city that you would love to live in i i love madras i know it's called chennai but i grew up in madras but the city that i would probably love to go and live in and barcelona Okay, excellent. We have come to the end of the time that we have, uh, Suresh. Really wonderful that you are able to make time uh, over there, lunch time for you as well. So, doubly appreciate that you have found the time. Uh, thank you again for joining us this Friday, and I hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks to Forbes India and to all the listeners as well. Uh, lovely that we have chatted and uh, really enjoyed the show, Ari. That was Suresh Shankar, uh, serial entrepreneur, founder, CEO of Crayon Data. That's it for this week's uh, for Startup Fridays conversation. I will be back next Friday with another entrepreneur. Until then, wherever you are watching us, listening to us, I hope you are staying safe and doing well. Have a wonderful Friday and a great weekend ahead.